My guest this week is Philip Natterman. Philip's a senior partner in the London office of McKinsey & Company, and he's also the chief financial officer of the UK, Ireland and Israeli complex of the firm. He's something of a McKinsey lifer, having started his career with McKinsey out in New York in 1999, moving subsequently to London in 2001. He's a telecoms guy. He's led McKinsey's global telecoms practice, as well as the media, telecoms and technology practice for that complex in uh, UK, Ireland and Israel. He works these days with a range of public and private sector organizations, making them more resilient, positioning them for sustainable, inclusive growth, especially through digital business building and transformation. He holds a PhD and an MA in economics with a focus on telecommunications industry economics from Georgetown University and also a BA in economics and mathematics from Yale University. So he's a senior, very experienced academic guy with a big background in professional services and a very, very strong background in McKinsey. He's a great guy to interview with a range of leadership experiences across that time, working not only within McKinsey, but also with the clients he's worked with and what he's seen. And it was a fabulous interview that I really enjoyed. I hope you're going to enjoy it as well. And without further ado, I'm Bob Judson. You're listening to Leading for Life Stories. And let's get to it. Philip, welcome. Really, really pleased to have you on the podcast and, uh, and delighted to have a chance to talk to you today. Thank you, Bob. Really excited to be here. Thanks. No, it's it's great that you know, as I've been doing this with guests, uh, I'm trying obviously initially to to tap into people I know well and get their experiences because I think there are so many people who've got fantastic leadership experience that's too good not to share, as it were. So that's really really helpful. I'm very grateful for your time. Uh, just to kick things off, could you give our listeners just a bit of a short summary of, of your career to date and and how you see that and a little bit of highs and lows? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a Senior partner at McKinsey, has been uh, the consultancy. I've been there for about 24 years, which was definitely not the plan. So I joined straight out of graduate school. I realized I wasn't going to become an academic and was a bit of a loss as to what to do and thought, you know, consulting, management consulting would be good for the finishing school. The idea was I'll do it for two years and then get a quote unquote real job. Uh, 24 years later, I'm still doing it. Uh, I started in our New York office. More by accident, this was back in the late 90s, fell into the sort of EMT tech media telecom space, which at the time was great until the dot-com bubble burst in 2001. And uh, then moved around that time to London, actually. You know, I have uh, loved it really from, from day one, very much to my own surprise, and really have stuck with it. Uh, became a partner about 1995, a uh, senior partner in about 2013 still in London, and uh, these days I am also the CFO of McKinsey in the UK, Ireland, and Israel, which is sort of our cluster, so I probably do two-thirds of my work direct client work, sort of the corporate of and about a third really the, you know, the CFO, and it's more CFO and COO role for uh, the region. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks. I mean, you mentioned academia and you weren't going to be an academic. Of course, uh, I happen to know your, your father is obviously a pretty esteemed uh, academic. And, and you had, if I take you back further than joining McKinsey to um, where you grew up and, and your, uh, your childhood through to, uh, to joining the work environment. I mean, I think you've got a really interesting backstory. Could you, could you just share some of that? Yeah, of course. So um, I was actually born in East Germany. We left East Germany in 1986, so three years before the war came down. And that it's an, it's a, Interesting story because one of the re- main reasons why my parents decided to leave was that in, in East Germany, if your parents had gone to university, it was nigh on impossible for you to go to university. And the problem was that not only had my parents and all of their siblings and in-laws, but also three out of my four grandparents had been to university. And so basically my sister and I would yeah, not have been able to go. And uh, it was a, took a very long time to, to get out because my dad physicist and uh, East Germany wouldn't want him to leave. And so ultimately it was actually Joe Biden, who was then the, when it was a senator from Delaware, he was the um, Senate Foreign Relations Committee chair and he ultimately got us out. But the, the reason why that was so important, uh, I think in my upbringing, how I look at the world was that because my dad was never allowed to travel when he was in East Germany, but he got all these invitations. So I grew up as a seven-year-old at the dinner table with names like Caltech, Harvard, 
Princeton, MIT. And after we left East Germany, um, I decided to go to the U.S. for a year. So my senior year in high school, I was high school in Spain, and happened to, with that family, travel to St. Louis uh, in October when it's called the U.S. News and World Report U.S. College Rankings came out. And I was looking at it and saw the the rankings and all these names that I'd grown up with and decided to see, you know, could I get in? I didn't actually want to, but it was more sort of a competitive spirit of what might be possible out of all these names that I, you know, heard from my father as a child. And that was the reason why I then, you know, decided to stay in the U.S. and, and, and go to Yale and, and much to my parents' degree, actually. But it's one of the things where, you know, something that happened very early on in my life had a quite a long-term impact in terms of trying to give it a go and trying to see how um, far I would be able to push it. So I think it's really around almost some of the adversity early on in life was actually one of the most important things in getting me to, you know, giving me a sort of an inner drive to go and grab opportunities rather than to give in, really. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, not least because... Uh- in my own background, I talked about this on, uh, on I think it's my first episode of my podcast, actually, where, uh, I mean, it's slightly different, but my father had died when I was very young, and, the, uh, and my mum had a pretty tough time in the 60s. And, and I do think it is a, one of those things that you either grab the opportunities that come from that and, and make the absolute most of it when you can and fight your way out of that kind of relatively adverse position, or you don't. Uh, and then there are, in my view, too many people at the minute who kind of use that as a Oh, I've had a really tough time and therefore it's really difficult to break out of this. The reality is it should give you opportunity to, uh, you know, and, and drive to, to push out. And that sounds exactly what you've done. So, you know, fantastic story. No, I, I you're right. I mean, one of the things that actually, um, you know, when I was a sort of a young teenager, I was, you know, the typical teenager, probably not very driven, not very focused, uh, and I got middling grade and I became actually, once we'd moved to West Germany, became very ill when I was about sort of 13, 14, I spent about, to, over sort of two and a half year period, probably spending a year now in hospital, um, uh, at times, you know, with reasonably serious surgery. And I still remember the, you know, and initially I was like, oh, why me? And all my friends could do this sort of thing. So I'd be sorry for myself. But as things moved on uh, and things got worse, you know, sort of quite, quite dangerous at times, I, I still remember there was one very, and which was a sort of defining moment in my life big surgery that I, have, that I had and, you know, I had been told beforehand of the side effects, one of which would have been expected at least sort of, you know, temporary um, loss of uh, control of my legs, potentially permanent due to nerve damage. And, um, yeah, when the surgery and I'm not waking up in my hospital bed and sort of slightly groggy and trying to, the first thing I try to do is move my toes. And I remember lifting up, trying to lift up my, you know, lifting up my blanket to see. And it's the longest, it took the longest that I've ever had to sort of trying to get, you know, from the brain to the toes to get the toes to move. At least it felt like sort of a good 10 seconds. And they moved. And it was, it's, that was one of the defining moments of my life because at that point, the sole thought that I carried was, I will show them that I am worthy of the second chance. I have no idea who them was or it, um, but it, that was one of the driving for a long time until this, the sort of, you know, having had the chance and, and as we said, right, I mean, facing adversity, but actually using it as a, the fact of coming through adversity as a reason to take advantage of it. And that was, you know, that was that moment when I decided I wanted to go to the U.S. And I think a lot of my mindset and sort of how I think about the world was shaped in that more doing that whole experience of, you know, things can be, I mean, even as a 15 year old, from one day to the next, you can, you know, suddenly be stuck in a hospital for a year. Uh, and so therefore this using the opportunities you have rather than, and, and looking at the positive of things and the, the possibility of things rather than at the, you know, what might go wrong. And, and, and so I, I do think that that, you know, you're absolutely right, Bob, it's this, you know, how do I treat adversity and how do I use it to come out of it better than I'm going into it? Fascinating story. I mean, interestingly, and, and totally unrelated, but I, I've got a good friend who had a bad flying accident, very bad flying accident, and, and his legs below his knees were effectively shattered. He landed still in the ejection seat, parachute just deploying, and, and obviously hit the ground incredibly hard. 
and they thought he'd never walk again. And when I remember first seeing him you know, after that, he had big sort of pins through his knees and through his ankles. He had to rotate these things in order to try and keep the, the joints in any way movable. And initially, when you talk about the, the brain to the toe signal, he was sending a signal to his foot that he wanted to move it up and down, and it was moving left and right. And, the, and he had to literally relearn how to do that. And he not only got back to walking again, he got back to flying military fast jets and then subsequently an airline pilot, which is just incredible wow. right? as, as a story to kind of triumph through those things. So, yeah. And I think exactly as you've just said, I think it's the sort of story that um, resonates so well with, uh, with people who have been anywhere close to that, that you, know, you can use that as a springboard. So no, that's, that's really great. Looking sort of a bit more forward now, you... you um, as you said, you're something of a lifer at McKinsey. You've been there a long time. Uh, this podcast obviously is all about leadership. I'd just be really interested in how you have shaped your own and adapted your own leadership style over the years as you've got more and more senior in the organization. It's a good, it's a good, it's a very good question. And I don't think I was born a natural leader. I think when I started and the way it works, like most organizations, the way it works, McKinsey, what kind of thought that you thought of it sort of an associated with your response kind of for your own work. work you, you become a manager, you manage a team of good people, people, you become a sort of senior partner and a partner, you manage multiple teams, and then you become a senior partner where really it's around creating opportunities for others with a large number of partners. And what is quite interesting, and there's a sort of link to both of what I think I've brought to my work is early on, it was very much around leading by doing. So if you think about consulting, it's a lot of it is problem solving, uh, coming up with the right answer. So it was very much around, and this was really what I enjoyed, you know, helping my teams deliver the best they could do on the, uh, but let's call it the content side. And I think what has, what has changed for me, and I, and I was probably always very demanding at times, too demanding. But I think what has changed in my leadership style over time is, and this was quite a difficult thing that, you know, you become more senior and the, the group of people you're responsible for, the, the, the type of things you do in the parallel is so large that you can no longer control everything direct. You have to, by definition, trust others. And what that means is, you know, the way things are done in my team is now quite the way I would do it. And actually, Getting comfortable with that took quite a while. And I think it is, it is a, you know, look, I'm still working on it every day, but I think it is a, an important art to learn how much freedom, a degree of freedom, how much do I step away that, you know, the next generation that might mean take something the way I, they want to do it. Obviously, they need to own it. But at the same time, it is still, the critical things or the the, the, the the dimensions that I find absolutely critical are still done in a way that I can stand behind the work. And that is, it is, you know, it's a, it, it's a constant balance and, and it depends obviously on the people one works with. It depends on the, on the challenge or issue at hand. But I think that is one thing which over time I've learned. And the, for me, the key thing as part of that, which has been very helpful and important is to meet people in that process. And I think that's one of the, the same way I quote unquote manage up as managed down. And I think that's been really crucial, right? It is not that people that don't know, but it's really around, I, you know, it's the only thing, you know, do unto others as you want others to do unto you. And I think that's a really important element just because, you know, just like I, when I was more younger, I was junior, did not like being told, you know, micromanaged and so on. And, that always meant, you know, I screwed up sometimes, absolutely, in a couple of quite infamous examples. Uh, and, you know, but doing this, but at least they're sort of creating enough of a safety net for my people that they can take risks and they can develop themselves in a way that will be different than what I would have done or have done, but still making sure that, that uh, you know, the quality that the outcome is, 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 is in line. And it's, yeah. I don't think I get it right all the time by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but I think it's the only way of doing it. And it did take a long time to, to get comfortable. 
Yeah, so so identify with that. Um, what I found in the Air Force, particularly, I mean, I was always very, very picky, particularly about some things like written work. And I was always very, if I found it terribly difficult to to let go and to kind of accept the 80% solution that was coming up from below. And But actually, as you say, I mean, as a leader, I think over time, you, you have to do that. You have to find a way to let go, to delegate, not only to free up the space for yourself, because otherwise it's, you know, it takes too much of your own time, but also actually to empower people, to let them get better so they become better leaders in time. And if you don't do that, then that's always a, as a really as a difficult area, I think, for, uh, for people. I find quite a lot when I do work on, on leadership training that people often find that delegation thing the hardest thing as they move up the ladder to, uh, to let go of stuff rather than just accumulate more stuff. It's a, it's a tough, tough area to do. Sticking with that kind of theme, though, and leadership traits, what are, what are the values, if you like, that you consider most important both for yourself but also for those that, uh, that you lead and perhaps just as importantly those that actually you're looking up to and, and that are still leading you in the organization? What are the, what are the most important ones of those? I think the most, I mean, I'll start with what I look up. I think the most important one is, I would call it selflessness. So it is leading, you know, with the objective of doing the right thing by the organization, by the objective, by the people, rather than the right thing, you know, by yourself, by myself. And and I had, I was lucky to add, you know, two particular mentors when, and the sort of, the run-up to partner was one, and then the run-up to senior partner was another. Um, in very different ways, exhibited that. Uh, so they were very seasoned partners, had played big roles within McKinley, um, but were unbelievably, um, you know, polite, unbelievably uh, selfless, uh, unbelievably humble, despite the fact that, you know, probably two of the most intelligent and thoughtful people I've ever met. And I think that to me is, is really important. It is, you know, always push yourself to that one step further. And I think that is one of the things I'm noticing increasingly, you know, amongst some of our younger colleagues that isn't always there, this willingness to really challenge yourself saying, is this the best I can do by doing it in a way that is, you know, I demand that from myself to the same degree or more as I ask my team to do it. And that is one of the things that really learned. It goes back to the point we made earlier about, you know, kind of calling or managing upwards the same way you manage downwards. And if anything, be more critical upwards. But it's been helpful for my career um, than, being, than being critical, down, critical downwards. Um, I think so. That that I think is, 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 a, is, a, is a key thing. I think the second one for me is, and this is more what I what I value in people, what I expect is failure. Is fine, not great, but fine as long as people have really tried. Um, right, and and ultimately, if you really try and, and you fail, that means you know either actually presumably means I hadn't. I picked the goal, which was out of reach, right? That is something which I think is very admirable. And I think we learn, I've learned probably more from failures uh, than from quoting word victories um, or successes. But, but I think that's, that's the second thing for me. It, it is this really committing and probably linked to this idea of I'm, you know, expecting others and myself to give the best I can do that may or may not be enough, but it is really this how I stretch myself that little bit further, you know, that it is uncomfortable, potentially, that it is slightly more than I would like to do. And that, to me, is, is I think, the, the, the sort of the selflessness of expecting for myself the same as from others. And I think it is this really trying, accepting, you know, not, not everything can succeed, but then picking yourself up and how you pick yourself up, I think is almost more important than, you know, whether or not you are on the Yeah, no, once again, I completely agree. I, I, it, somebody said to me when I was doing my coaching qualifications, actually, that there's no failure, only feedback. 
and you learn a you learn a hell of a lot from failure. Uh, and I saw a really interesting visual. I think it was on it was Stephen Bartlett actually putting something up on LinkedIn uh, just the other day where it was a bunch of Lego bricks, and you know there were half of them were success and half of them were failure. The the comment being made was that people tend to put the there's a division between the two. Whereas in reality, the the image they then had was they built them into a wall, you know, with the success bricks and the failure bricks, and and I think that is how it is, isn't it? You know, you 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 get stronger because of things that you actually uh, uh, you didn't do well, and uh, it was Kelly Clarkson, wasn't it? What what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and I think that's true, and it's definitely that's a that's a fair fair shout. You mentioned mentors, and I think I mean mentors are important for all of us in and role models. Who are the people that? If you were to pick two, uh, who are the two individuals, dead or alive, as it were, that have influenced you the most over uh, over your career so far? Let's go to on slightly teasing next time. One is definitely my father. I'll talk about that in a second. Why? And then I think the second one probably is uh, a guy called Peter Easton, who used to be the sort of number two or number three in McKinley, retired about close to a decade ago. So. Um, and I think the reason is, uh, I'll start with my father. So he and I had quite a complicated relationship. He was very demanding. He probably not the most caring. Many others are more challenging than caring, obviously very smart. Um, and a lot of the reason I left for the U.S. was I wanted to forge my own life sort of outside of his, yeah, where I was. But what, what he what he taught me was this yeah, pushing yourself I think there's two things, pushing yourself really hard. And I think the second one is he always looked for a source of an error of whatever in himself first. So if something goes wrong, it is probably something that I did rather than you know, blaming people around him. And now you could say that that can lead to sort of self-doubt and so on. And yeah, it had definitely hasn't with me. But um, but I think it is a very helpful way of looking at the world because what it gets you or what it can get you is it moves you away from blaming the world for you know your lot. And actually puts it primarily on you as an individual, me as an individual. And I think that's been a very important, very important element of it because the, the I think it's sort of a, a result thereof is, and this is probably a combination of that sort of upbringing and, you know, my illness and then moving to America. So I, I'm a strong believer in we create reality. Reality is not just we actually create it. Right? And I think that 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 mindset I think is really important. Because I think if I if I accept reality as it is an almost path of thing that makes me, you know, a leaf sort of floating down a river, versus saying we create reality, we make choices, we actually create opportunities for ourselves or not. Um it gives you much more agency, I think, or it has given me much more agency. You know, and if I think about boy from East Germany, you know, almost died when he was 14, made it to the U.S., you know, got an amazing education there, found a job that I loved from day two, you know, moved to the U.K. It, it's the, the probability was probably that that would not have happened. And I think a big reason for why it happened was this, you know, this, this, this way of thinking about I create my own reality, only I am responsible for myself, but also I'm the only one who's accountable or who can make it happen. Normally. I think that, that was the first thing. And then for a long time, it, it sort of led almost a little bit to back to the leadership style, almost a little bit of a sort of a low and wound leadership style. So it was very much in the early part of my career where like earlier with mostly around the the problem solving, helping people come to the right answer so on, rather than leading as a you know, leading a body of humanity. And this is where the second my second, you know, mental, like second person that influenced my career came in the former colleague of mine, Peter Bison, who 
Wood is any an unbelievably humble man. I'm a very, you know, I grew up in New Hampshire, uh, very, you know, not poor, but, but definitely not, 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 not middle class upbringing. And he, he rode through the ring and he owned him. The best counselor, you know, CEO counselor I've ever met, probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. And even sort of towards the end of his career, he was probably at the pinnacle of his career when, when we had met very early in my career in the US. And then for various reasons, he and I started working together on a couple of situations in the UK. And his selflessness and his humbleness, despite everything he had and his care that he took in, you know, I was probably still a somewhat rough diamond in the rough when, when, when we started working together again, was the almost sort of perfect supplement or the perfect, I don't want to say counterbalance, but sort of combination with the, you know, the previous only I can make my own life and only I'm responsible for it. Nobody else will. With combining this with a humility and a humbleness. And I definitely, you know, I'm not a humble human being, but it is something that has given me good counter balance or counterweight. I mean, you know, I think I still definitely sort of on the leadership scale and more with the, the first one. But I think that made me a much better leader because it also has given me, you realize that, you know, we all have, we all even we all have fears and worries and, and, and insecurities and sort of accepting the team that we need and the clients we serve and the organizations we, we interact with as, you know, fallible and yet equally valuable, I think is a, is a very important, had been a very important element or a very, yeah, very important portion of my, you know, sort of evolution as a leader and my learning as a leader uh, over the last 20, 25 years. Yeah, yeah, super, super helpful. Thanks very much indeed. I mean, we, you talked a bit about failure and we, we touched on, you know, learning from it and, and moving forward from it. What's your... Uh, looking at the sort of highs and lows of uh, of Philip Natterman across his uh, his career, what's what's the thing that you feel you did best, and that's your most important achievement to date? And and ultimately, what do you want your legacy to be as you get to uh, to later in life? So we get well. I think the best. I mean, I'll use it as a phrase, and this is. I think it's a bonus. Um, somebody once called it that I had a high degree of stick to a difference. Um, I can call it stubbornness, but I like, I like stick to a difference better. And, you know, if I look at the sort of lowers, I, I, I joined in the, you know, I mean, back in the late 90s, sort of the, the bull run and so on, and it was one of the most heady days, I think, of any professional service firm. Uh, and then we had the first downturn and, you know, out of we were a group of, I think, six sort of project managers at the time, a uh, group of friends of us, uh, of which I was the last, but the only one to survive, uh, uh, because there were significant layoffs. And then, you know, I became a partner and I worked on relatives for the art. It was one of my main clients went away and we were sort of second, uh, tip and uh, two of my mentors retired. And so it's sort of a time in the wilderness and, you know, me probably slightly too early on running by myself. And back to the point earlier, I probably was not as much of a politician and team player at the time as I probably would have. And so it took me a very long time to get elected to your partner. You know, it was probably one of the sort of most lowest low. And there was an interesting, though, there was one personal rejection one field that you don't get. But I think the second thing, which was quite interesting, it was the fear that you know, McKinsey, at least at the point, it's slightly different. I wasn't up or out, as we call it. You either get promoted to the next level within a certain period of time, or you have to leave. And I actually realized at that point that how much I care for the organization and how important the organization is for me, because, yes, of course, I was frustrated and angry and, you know, for not getting elected to your partner, but the 
almost bigger worry was I did not want to leave the players. And I really love the place. I love the people. I love the way you work. I love the organization, the fact that it's a true partnership. Um, and so that was definitely one of the professional low points. You know, in the last it was a little three year period, uh, which was as my wife then I can attempt to but reasonably unpleasant for everybody. But I think the getting the second part of your question, that also then as a flip side create, I think what is my what would I like my legacy to be? And I think but for me I you know, I don't particularly care about my, my name being recalled or so but what I do care about and I think what I look, do like as my legacy is being the next generation of people that I have quote unquote raised in a professional sense, you know, taking off either be that within the organization or outside and actually finding their their way. I had a quite interesting um, experience a couple of weeks ago. There was a, a business analyst who had been with us in Sheepin that was 17 years ago. And to be perfectly honest, uh, I've completely forgotten about her. And I've been her mentor at the time. Um, Work with her. And she uh, showed up and is now at one of my clients as one of the executives. And her memory of how we had worked together 17 years ago and the advice given her, you know, it was, and then, and then the, 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 the sort of excitement she still had about it after all this time is one of those things where that to me is the legacy. Because ultimately, if I look at where, you know, how did I get to where I get to, got, where I have gotten to, all the internal and all my, you know, own character traits without the help of others, without the, the apprenticeship from others, without the guidance from others, without the, you know, sometimes getting a smack on the, a proverbial smack on the back of the head or sometimes getting an arm put around your shoulder, I wouldn't be here. And so therefore, I think creating the next generation of advisors, of counselors who you know, and everybody's different. We'll carry the sort of enough of the, you know, what is the right answer? I'm pushing myself to this, you know, do unto others as you do unto yourself, do it in a selfless way. And rather than carry enough of that in them is really, I think, what I see of my, as, as, as my legacy and is, you know, and I, and I think the second part probably might be just more sort of in my CFO role, ensuring that we try and keep enough of the magic that I experienced when I joined McKinsey many years ago, and which has let me treat years later for twenty the last twenty four years and probably the next ten years. Having enough of that retained for the next generation. Yeah, and that's tremendously helpful. I I, I think it's fascinating, isn't it? It, it is so enjoyable when you meet people from your past who have got really nice things to say about stuff you did that's really influenced them i've had that a number of times and i think that is you know that's it's a wonderful kind of accolade more than you know almost anything else i've had i really do enjoy that just before we move off the leadership piece if you were looking back in time back to what sounds like a pretty challenging childhood that you had but you know with everything that's gone on what advice would you be giving yourself now from the viewpoint you now have about what to do and what, what should young Philip Natterman do? It's a very good question. I probably think aim higher than you possibly could and the sky is the limit. And let me explain why. I think I sort of think back at, you know, being a, I don't know, a teenager um, in, in, in university or so. I, I, I think there isn't enough, you know, you have these sort of very great leaders and very great successes in, you know, in business, the military, uh, academia, and so But they seem so far removed and so rare, right? There's one Elon Musk kind of in the world. But I actually think a lot of people settled for less than they could. And that's partly because, you know, it's hard and it's painful and, and all these things, so maybe start that circumstance. But I think a lot of it is the way I think sort of society brings us up. And I think, you know, very, I, I think very few people or very few parents, very few schools, very few, you know, whatever it is, kind of make you 
you too can be X. And I think that's the one thing which is really setting your sight much, much higher than you possibly think is feasible, right? And I think that doesn't matter what, what social economic background I'm from. But then linking that then to really putting in the hard work. So it's not like, oh, you know, a bit of sort of in the apprentice where, you know, I'm going to be the next millionaire and, <laughs> you know, and then sort of try to blag your, blag your way through it. But actually really setting your goals unbelievably high and then working against this. Because I do think, I do think that many people under sell themselves, you know, or sort of, I think almost handicap themselves by thinking, oh, this isn't possible. And I read, there was an interesting blog the other day or something where someone said, you know, the fault I think for many of us is, you know, oh, what, what, what if it fails if I, I'm trying to do X, Y, whatever it is. Like, what if I fail? What if it doesn't work? And so, you know, isn't it very risky? And his point was, well, let me show you the risk of not doing it, right? And then I think that that big mindset of yes, it's risky, right? Back to your point, and I might fail, but even if I fail, I get up and I start again, and you know, obviously, fine. You know, nobody's going to fail for twenty five years and keep going. I totally get that, but I do think. Aiming much higher and committing to that than we want, I think, is then, then, then there's sort of the default, right? Which I think is, is, is the key thing. And it's quite interesting. I mean, if I look back now to back then, you know, I, I still remember sort of coming out of even university or even grad school, you know, I'll do this for two years and then I'll sort of get a normal, you know, a, a nice job and live a sort of a quiet life just a little bit. You know, that's, it wasn't like, it wasn't a conscious choice. But it was sort of the, you know, that's what people do kind of thing. Rather than, you know, I want to be the next Elon Musk or whatever it is. It doesn't, you know, but I think that really looking much further and much, much higher than this. I think a lot of people can do a lot more than, you know, than they believe themselves. And I think there's only one way of finding out. No, I, I again, I totally agree. I think it's fascinating as well how, as I've done a few of these interviews and just in general conversations with people as senior leaders in organizations, they've all had to work really hard. They've all had to aim really high. There is no free lunch and it's not yet. I think, and you kind of alluded to this earlier on where I think there is a challenge in the minds of some today that you can have all these things with actually relatively less effort than than you know you and i know you need to put in in order to get there and it's it's a challenging area i think particularly for middle management of organizations now to find ways to motivate young you know young people particularly to say look you know and and i think post pandemic it's definitely an issue people yeah. you know people's approaches changed as they went through the pandemic uh you know they obviously work from home they were often they were starting work from home they never went into the office and now they're kind of challenged a bit in getting them into the office. And that's really hard because at the end of the day, if they're going to be successful, life is, you know, there's, there's nothing's magical has changed here. You know, they're still going to have to work really hard and they're going to have to put the hard yards in in order to do it, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I, I fully agree. I fully agree. Um, and I think that it's actually, you know, I, I, I'm very lucky because I, and, you know, as you said, my, the acuity is my first real job out of grad school. Uh, and, you know, I love it 24 years in. But I do think people underestimate the the satisfaction one can get from hard work. Right? And obviously, if it's something that helps, if it's something that you love, that you do. But I think that, it's, you know, if, if something comes sort of easily, like, you know, I become an influencer or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's really what is the, you know, what is the value in it and what is the satisfaction in it? And I do find, I always find oh, there, there's a certain degree of reassurance in a freedom that comes to hard work. And what I mean by that is, if I work hard and I know I'm good and I know I can do it, even using what I have today, 
right? I know I can do something else. And I think that's one of the things which is, I think, really important that you know that what you've achieved is achieved based on your own drive and hard work. And therefore, you can replicate it somewhere else. And that gives you a degree of freedom to say no to things. And I think that degree of freedom is unbelievably important to retain, you know, one's professional and probably personal integrity. But there will be, you know, there are moments for all of us where you're in a situation where, you know, you're very uncomfortable and it probably doesn't align with one's values. And, you know, if I, if I'm there out of accident, basically, or whatever it is, then it's very hard for me to say no, because if I lose this, how can I replicate it? But if I'm there because of what I have achieved, I think it is much easier to have the confidence to say no. And I think in the long run, that does create a much you know, happier and I think more balanced life. Perfect segue into my next question, because when I've seen firsthand how stressful and busy lives of uh, partners and senior partners in particular are at uh, professional services firms, what do you do to kind of maintain work-life balance and de-stress? What's uh, what's relaxation feel like for you? Well, so I think I think the the, the first thing I say is I'm very lucky that I'm relatively good at compartmentalizing my life, so I can you know work till eight o'clock and I you know leave the office to, uh, and turn off the laptop and I can think about something completely different. And I think that's a really and that you know and to be fair, I've nothing I've done for that. It's just it's a lucky trait because I think it's very hard if you, if you don't have that. So in a way, it might be slightly easier for me. I think there's two things. One is I do do a reasonable amount of sport, and it's actually quite interesting. I've never, or there are very, very few, very unfit, overweight senior partners in any professional service from Melbourne. And I actually think that is you cannot operate in this level without being physically fit. I just, I don't think it works. So I think this keeping yourself physically fit and at a count of it is, is really important. And I, I actually feel it. I mean, you know, I do German Peloton sort of during the summer. I, you know, I ski in the winter most weekends. I do a lot of ski touring. Uh, I love ski touring up a mountain, uh, almost more than going down back to this point of competing with myself. It, 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 it creates. Space. I mean, one of the things I love about being in the mountains is you cannot really think about anything else than what's in, in front of you. So I mean, the first time a, a friend of mine took me to Germany and Germany, we have a place, one of the places I love most in the world. Is. We flew in from London that morning. That was a Friday morning, I think. And we just went for a little two-hour hike or something like that afterwards. And within half an hour, we were crossing a Kunawa where were rather loud rocks raining down on us. And the only thing you could focus on was how do I know why they three minutes and getting a brought there. That had really a little bit of an extreme way of doing it. But I think this in his address look real right all you focus on is where do I put my next foot, where do I put the you know, where am I going? And I think I find it unbelievably relaxing because you know, of course you're paying attention, but it's almost like the sort of the undergatherer part of the mind rather than the medical development part of the mind. And so, you know, it's almost like it flattens out the brain. So I think that's, that's really important. And then I think, um, for me, classical music is, is, is one of the things that is a, a very important relaxation method. And actually, it's funny, so my father used to work for Romanot. Uh, as a theoretical physicist, and he would always listen to classical music. And so I grew up with that, and I made almost a mistake, I would say, when I was writing my PhD, this started to listen to classical music as well, which is so bad now that I cannot work without classical music in the background if I have to really concentrate. It's almost like creates a white noise. And so in the office, I constantly have music playing. But it's, it's, it's again, one of those things where, for me, it... You know, it, 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 it takes the mind off. But then, yeah, I, don't, I think it's, it's a combination of, of definitely a lot of focus on the physical fitness. And then on, you know, classical music, theater, there's 
things other than my job and, and, and things very different to my job. Um, but, you know, as, as my wife said, I said to me half an hour, I said, oh, it must be nice to be able to go look at the garden on a Friday. And she goes, oh, you love your job. You know, don't even try to. And it's true, right? I mean, ultimately, I love what I do. And so therefore, yes, of course, I need to take time out. But it's less of a, you know, it, it, it's more sort of to reanimate rather than, oh, my God, I can't deal with it anymore. Kind of thing. So I think I'm very lucky yeah, it's interesting. Uh, particularly your last comment there about uh, uh, Jenna saying talking about going out to the garden. I mean, I find because I I've always loved what I do. I mean, particularly when I was in the military, uh, you know, I, that was the thing that kept me going every day was enjoying what I did, and and I still have that now with the work that I do now. And and I often find that I have to be disciplined to take myself away from that because actually I just really enjoy it. I mean, I really enjoy doing some of the stuff I'm doing now to the point that. My wife says, you're going to spend any time with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, so you know, I, I think, yeah, it is important to uh, to have that discipline. And now it's great. Thank you very much. Uh, switching tack a bit. I, I, I try very hard when I have uh, people like yourself on, on these to look at what you do and the world you see, which is obviously a, from a very senior viewpoint, uh, you, you can provide some really important perspectives. You alluded to it at the beginning, but, You've been in, McKin- in the sort of forefront of McKinsey's uh, telecommunications business for a very large part of your uh, of your career, and it gives you, I think, a pretty unique view across the waterfront of uh, of what's obviously a really important and very very fast developing sector. What have the most important changes been over that time, and and probably just as importantly, with everyone discussing AI and all those sorts of things, where where do you see? that going you know is it a, is it something we should worry about is it a is it a real positive step just general views on on all of that i mean it's an interesting question because i i the industry has definitely changed massively right i mean uh like you know now but i think what i what i see more and more you know profit lifted and players have entered the next but i think the more I look at it, the more ultimately it is driven by people. And yeah, the technology matters obviously massively, but in terms of what we do with it and how we operate is 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 largely people. And I think what is very interesting is I think the way managers or the the world that managers come up to allow, so to speak, is it shapes their way of thinking unbelievably. So if I look back you know, in the in the early two thousands, the mobile markets were growing and so on. And there's a lot of people who then became CEOs and you know, about sort of ten years ago, who had actually only ever operated in an upward trajectory world. And it was very hard for them to change to a world where, you know, I mean, telcos today is a the commodity, you know, it's the computational power, it's the iron so we're focusing on today. And I'm through a fast for what, you know, 10, 20 years. The next wave will have happened and so on. And so I think what, what, what I think more and more is the importance for particularly managers CEOs to, to not be too shaped by their upbringing, so to speak, which is easier said than done. But I think it's really important because, you know, especially in this sector, which is relatively fast changing, that you know, the rate of technological innovation will only increase. I think looking at things a new rather than always through the glasses that you know they sort of put on as they as they progress in their careers. I think really really important. Do your specific question on AI. I mean, it it, it reminds, reminds me a little bit of you know back in the two thousands, the sort of first internet craze and that you know the sort of the S curve, which basically is at the beginning we always overestimate the impact of any new technology. And in the long run, we underestimate the overall of a technology. And so I think, so, I mean, the start that I think in general, particularly in generative AI is, is truly amazing. Uh, and I think particularly if you sort of think about the last language model, we nearly only had a fundamental snare 12, 18 months ago. So if you think about what has been created in that time is probably the fastest technological thing I have ever uh, experience. I think it 
what is probably different, and this is probably why we hear more about, is unlike before where, you know, automation addressed a lot of blue-collar jobs, this is starting to address white-collar jobs. So it's sort of the chattering classes are suddenly being impacted. And so you have a lot more, you know, media reporting and so on. I'm not sure if the magnitude of impact will be that much different than what we had in sort of more digital automation. It's just the people who are impacted, you know, have a louder voice. I think having said that is it will raise the bar, like all innovation in terms of the people that actually can have an impact. And this goes back bit back to our earlier conversation, but I think a lot of work, you know, be that in marketing, be that in science and so on, be that in law, will be automated the way that is sort of value adding today. Now, in an ideal world, that means we will build on top of that and, you know, therefore increase productivity. But I think it will be quite fundamentally different. I mean, one thing I had a conversation with a law firm the other day, and they are obviously looking at, you know, Relative AI is one of the key, um, law is one of the key areas, like all this in terms of second contracts and some of drafting contracts, that's how the basics. And if you look at a law firm today, you know, they hire, I don't know, whatever, you know, you hire 10, you hire 10 associates of which you expect one or two to make partner. The reason you hire 10 is because you need a lot of legwork in effect. Well, you won't need that anymore which A, I might only hire three or four. But more importantly, actually, the way I need to hire them, because rather than saying I hire them because they're smart and you know we'll figure out over the next 10 years which one or two of them will become a partner, you actually need to be able to predict much more accurately who do we think will be the likely future partners because I still need those. Right? And so it, it actually, did, I think the societal implication in terms of the skill set in terms of how people and the talent, the type of talent that people will look at I think will change quite significantly. I think that's quite a, a fundamental change. So look, do we need to be afraid or not? I don't think we need to be afraid, but I think we need to be thoughtful in how we approach it. And I think we need to be open how we approach it. Yeah, it's really interesting you uh, you say that about AI. I, I was looking at something on LinkedIn the other day where it was leadership stuff, actually. And they it's about contributing to articles um, when you've got kind of, I suppose, relative experience and they're, they're seeking people to to add to that. But looking at what it has produced as a starter is amazing. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Really high quality stuff, and and that of course is only going to get better. I think it's it's going to be fascinating to see where it goes. But at the same time, I can kind of see the rate of learning being a, being a threat to lots of people, and that's why obviously some people are are inevitably worried about it because it's exactly as you say. You know, the number of people that are going to get employed for certain roles is going to diminish, and that's going to create more competition in a world where there's already a ton of competition. So, no, it's, it's definitely going to be fascinating. I, I, I hadn't heard your analogy about the S-curve, actually. That's a, uh, an interesting one and, and maybe very applicable to this, that's for sure. Uh, just looking, last question really on the consulting kind of business. I mean, I, I've been both sides of this. I've, I've been a, a client of consultants uh, and I've actually been a consultant when I left the Air Force and went to work for Deloitte. And I've, I've often heard... The, the old criticism that you actually pay consultants to uh, look at your watch and tell you the time and that they kind of question the value. And indeed, when I was working on COVID for the government, there was a huge amount of pressure on the amount of consultants that government had, et cetera, in, uh, in that space. Uh, and I, I clearly don't subscribe to the view that they don't add a lot of value. I think they add a tremendous amount of value, particularly in a world where COVID is a good example, where the government just didn't have the resources to be able to do what it needed to do. But what's your take, um, in particularly in the context of what we just talked about, actually, on in jobs in the workplace uh, and AI and technology, et cetera, with professional services firms generally and McKinsey maybe specifically about the kind of importance of your role going forward? It's a good question. And I think if I sort of reflect on my own work over the last you know, quarter century, it definitely has changed. I think there is the when, – when I thought that there was the traditional – my end product is a piece of power as a strategy. And look, there's still, there's still a, a place for that. But my, my experience is it, it's a relatively small thing. I think the much bigger issue is that most organizations, I think this might be where the sort of what, when it comes to 
most organizations do not have an ideal problem. There are plenty of ideas in an organization you can ask people on how to improve things and what to do differently. What I see is most organizations have an execution, and that is partly because, you know, to execute, to, to capture a new idea or to capture the benefit of a new idea, I need new skills that I may not have. Uh, it might mean that, you know, people have day jobs, so they got stuff to do. But I think also a big part, and I think this is actually one of the value-adds good advisors and good consultants can do is to make more of an exception, you need to fake out or break organizational structure, organizational barriers. And that is very difficult for someone in an organization to do. It is much easier for someone to be that who comes from the outside, who is there by definition for limited time period. So one of the things we do, a lot of transformations we do, we put in place the team transformation, not that though typically, you know, joins the management team, tends to go to the CEO, become part of the, the act or whatever for time. And his or her role is solely to, you know, hold teams to account, combined teams of, you know, McKinsey and the client and so on, to deliver the agreed transformation. That person is able to be much more direct much less, you know, tiptoeing around politics than any member of the of the management team could for the simple reason I don't have to deal with these people afterwards. I get hired for a specific deliverable, which is, you know, I don't know, doubling your EBITDA or whatever it is, right? And so I actually think the key value that consultants can bring is one new skills capabilities in terms of building them. And Jenny I the perfect desire, right? We are doing a whole host of, we might, you know, we look at more than 6,000 sort of engineers, data scientists, designers, et cetera. And so we are developing a lot of NAI use cases for our clients and then help them hire the talent, et cetera. So that's sort of one setup. But I think the bigger one actually is the driving organizational change, driving the delivery of specific objectives, which you know, either because of lack of resources or more importantly, organizational barriers are too difficult um, for organizations to deliver any timely manner. And so, you know, I mean, do I sometimes take the word telling time? Yes, but telling you the time is not the valuable thing, right? It is actually then doing something about it, which is the valuable thing. And so I, I, I'm a big believer you know, that, that the days of consultants to your strategy, the end product of the parties of PowerPoint, that is increasingly over. Not least of which is, you know, there are so many former consultants in the corporate world these days that a lot of the skill sets are out there, right? But those are the, the it's the sort of the thinking skills, I'd call it that, and it's the doing skill set, which I think is very different. That all that, I think, really implicates the people we hire and we totally promote. It is increasingly important that it's people can actually, you know, we sort of use this trap line from thought partner to impact partner. Uh, right? and, and that has very clear implications for the type of people we need, the type of people who will be successful within the community because of these people who make stuff happen rather than the smartest kid in the room. Fascinating. And, uh, and I think, uh, and my time at Deloitte, I mean, I was there three and a half years full-time. You know, you've obviously been at McKinsey a great deal longer than that. I, the, the other thing I found fascinating taking to clients, and I was majoring on crisis and resilience work, was not only my background experience from the military, but also the diversity of the clients we work with across a lot of different sectors. And being able to look at that and, and come up with a, give you an alternative viewpoint, because often there's that groupthink thing in there in an organization that, and particularly even if it's not specific to that group in that particular company, it's it's potentially prevalent within the sector where they're looking, yeah. they're internally navel-gazing at their own group of companies that are competing with them, et cetera, where actually the answer might be look look elsewhere and get some some better stuff from there. So I think, yeah, there's definite value. No, I agree. I agree. Um, switching tack again, you, you spent, as you've been very clear about, you spent a chunk of time in the U.S., both from an education point of view and, and obviously you, you were there 
teaching as well as an as an academic, weren't you? I've also spent plenty of time there, including working there uh, in the military for uh, for a period of time. And I've, over over the years, I've worked very very close with Americans on on a number of things and been there on holiday. I worry though that I mean I've never seen the country so divided. I've got lots of friends on both sides of the political divide at the moment, and and it feels almost unbridgeable when with the conversations that I have with them. What's your take? What do you, what do you think the of the situation at the moment? Where do you see it heading? Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, well, I have a sort of a, a, a hopeful view of the world, and I have a pessimistic view of the world. I think the hopeful view of the world is, you know, if you trust, listen to some sort of surveys, and oh, it, you know, there is a I don't know seventy percent of the population, you know, in the sort of in the middle, either side of the left, right, or whatever you want to call it, divide, who are, you know, more progressive, I think, or more conservative, but, you know, are, quote-unquote, quite normal human beings. Uh, once, you know, grab their children, have a better, uh, the kind of people who work, and so on. And then you have the sort of extremes who are in our world of social media, and probably, I think, one of the worst things humanity's ever done is to create social media <laughs> is massively amplified their you know their mega and so that's what, you know and then you would hope that and obviously you know it does have an impact on the sort of middle bit the increased shouting and so on but that's sort of one one hope that I have I I think the 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 more pessimistic view is and I always find it very interesting when sort of, you know, either people in the UK or people in the US who look like, you know, what happened to, for example, Germany in the 1920s and 30s could never happen here. And, you know, I think as a German, you spend a lot of time studying that and thinking about it. And I think if you look at, you know, what happened just before World War One when it was a civilized country, so I don't think anybody would have expected that. And so I actually think the the veneer of, you know, social graces and, you know, the sort of progress we've built and then, and then the story that we tell ourselves. I mean, that's the, um, you know, the same thing as in Fabian, the whole idea of what makes us different from any other organism in the world. And as we, we can tell stories and we believe the story, right? Democracy is a story. We all believe it and nobody sees it. Well, they, you know, these, these things that hold us together. But I also think that the fifth that it, they're probably a lot more fragile than, than we think. And things tip over or can tip over. One, I think more rapidly than we think, but also the other, that I don't think it's always clear when and where they will tip. And so, you know, it might be that nobody actually really intends or very, very few people intend to tip them over, but guess what? All of a sudden it does. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm still hopeful. I, for all its shortcomings, I love the U.S. I, I, I you know, I, I came of age there, so to speak, I spent between 17 and 27 there. But I think you're right. I think it is it is quite scary what is happening. And I do think you know, I, I, I do think our systems and societies are more fragile than we think. And, you know, as we've seen in many I mean, Iraq is a perfect example, right? And once it tips into a society at war with itself, it's very hard to come back from that. And you know, that many I mean, I'm not saying the US is like Iraq in any way, but you know, I I, I, I do think it is treating the gift or whatever that that is democracy, that is a civil society, with you know with with the care it deserves is probably not a bad idea. No, I agree, and I think that the as you said that could never happen here. Never is a very strong word in this space. And I mean, at, at the end of the Cold War, most people thought and spoke about and wrote about that the era of state-on-state -state conflict was done. And here we look at what's going yeah. on in Ukraine, and you kind of go, well, <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think it's interesting, and it definitely bears watching. Um, penultimate question, Philip. You've been really generous with your time. I'm very grateful to you. What's the most memorable thing that's ever happened to you? Oh, that is a very good question and a big question. 
I'll tell you, it happened to some. Uh, and that has nothing to do with work. So when we were on a boat with friends off the coast of Sicily, near the Aeolian Islands, it was only three weeks ago. It's the most memorable nature one that has ever happened. And there was, we were, you have volcanoes there, which are still active. And it was the week when you had the meteor showers and we were on the high sea. And so it's dark and you had one of the few moments in my life where you've seen horizon to horizon star. And Milky Way actually don't horizon the way. It doesn't stop for the high up, but it really goes right. And normally with the flood of the volcano, it was erupting. The meteor showers were coming down and we had three dolphins swimming next to the boat. Oh, wow. And it was this sort of combination of this, you know, the sort of, you, you realize just how tiny we are. I mean, it's not even the universe, right? It's a galaxy that we see. And the sort of majestic nature, majesty or majestic, uh, you know, beauty of nature and the sort of, you know, volcano erupting. It's sort of, you just see the red glows. And you see how, you know, how small we are and yet how much we have created that. And it was one of those, the, you know, visually, I mean, it was, you know, you had these meteor towers come down. It was unbelievable. I think that probably sort of from a perspective, from a view, I think it's probably, maybe not the, but definitely one of the top five things that has ever happened. Yeah, that sounds stunning. I have to say, every time I go anywhere where it's dark skies and you suddenly realize, you know, you look at starlight, and you see just the quantity of stars. It is amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely it stunning. Is, stunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And you can see, you know, the actually milky way of the milky way. I mean, it, it is truly amazing. And finally then, Philip, what's the most difficult question you've ever been asked? This is going to sound super cocky. I don't think I've ever been asked a really difficult question. Because ultimately there's always an answer you may not like the answer. You may not like your views of the question. But I don't... I mean, you know, I'm sure there are... There, you know, because also I think the sort of... The big, the, the difficult question is, you know, why are we here? What are we doing? What are you trying to achieve? And so, and so forth. Which I don't find difficult to answer. You know, and so... Yeah, I mean, it's probably not yet. You were looking for, but I'm not sure I have one up. I didn't didn't have a preformed view. That no, is fascinating. Yeah, uh, so well, there the may be a difficult one out there still to come, I guess. Yeah. yeah. As I said, you've been very, very generous with your time. Thank you very much. I, I think you've provided some fascinating insights, both in, on the geopolitical front that we talked about lastly, but but also just leadership. And you know, you are at the top of a uh, of a very, very important big firm where an awful lot of people not only do work, but aspire to work and look at as a kind of role model firm. So you know, your insights are massively valuable. I'm extremely grateful for you. Thank you. No, thanks, Bob. I really appreciate the conversation. You know, you raised some very good questions, and I got to think about what's the difficult, what's difficult to say. I'm like, that, because I clearly didn't have an answer to that. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Philip. Thank you. Thank you.